everyone, and welcome to the next episode in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. My name is Sara Nazem, and I'm a clinical research psychologist at the Rocky Mountain Monarch, and I'll be your host for today's podcast. For listeners that have joined us for some of our other episodes, you know that we've been featuring episodes that center on what suicide postvention looks like across different settings. Today, we'll be concentrating on military settings and hearing a bit more about an organization that supports military suicide loss survivors and about a suicide postvention team model that has been utilized at a VA. Today, we're joined by Kim Ruako and Dr. Maggie Goliami. Thanks so much for joining us, Kim and Maggie. Let's begin by having you provide a brief introduction of yourself. Kim, we'll start with you. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. My name is Kim Ruwako. I am the Vice President of Suicide Prevention and Postvention for the Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, also known as TAPS. TAPS is an organization that provides comprehensive peer-based support for all those who are grieving a death of a loved one who served, um, including veterans and active duty service members. And we've also built a, a really comprehensive program around post-bension response. Um, I'm also a survivor of military suicide. My husband was a Marine Corps Cobra pilot who died by suicide in 2005. So I'm really happy to be here this morning and share some of my insight and expertise that I've gained over the last decade or so. Great. Thanks so much for joining us, Kim. Maggie, would you like to do a brief introduction? Sure. Sounds great. Again, thank you for having me. Um, So my name is Maggie Guglielmi, and I work at the Stratton VA Medical Center in Albany, New York. I'm a psychologist, and I also manage the PTSD program here. And um, about 10, 11 years ago, um, I created our suicide postvention team here for our hospital, so I currently am chair for that team. Um, I wrote my dissertation on suicide bereavement um, after a personal experience with suicide, and while I was a postdoctoral resident here at the VA, um, one of the staff psychologists that I work with and I were talking, and she pointed out that we really don't do anything um, formal in terms of support for providers or family members in the event of a veteran suicide, Um, and I had at the time to do a postdoctoral project. And so I decided to take this on as my project and I pulled the team together, a multidisciplinary team, and we created our model here of suicide postvention, which we've been using here at the facility ever since. Fantastic. So we'll definitely get back into that in a little bit. So a tease uh, for our listeners, if they're interested in learning more about how to set up a postvention team and model at their particular facility. But I wanted to just start out the podcast today um, to have you both speak a little bit about your own personal experiences with suicide loss and what suicide postvention has looked for the two of you. I think that's um, been a a major part of both of your careers and kind of your expertise in the area. Um, Kim, I know you started to give us a glimpse of that in your introduction, but I was wondering if you Mm -hmm. could tell us a little bit more about what that suicide postvention process looked like for you. Yeah, I mean, really, the postvention piece um, that I that I do now really developed after my own experience, after the death of my husband, and really um, a, a greater understanding and realization that um, people don't really know how to care for those after there's a death by suicide. Um, my husband was an active duty Marine. Um, he had been deployed to Iraq for about six months. Um, before his death, um, he returned from Iraq and died by suicide three months after his return. Um, he was a, you know, a very popular Marine, um, well respected by his peers. Um, he had just done a combat tour with uh, 75 um, combat missions, so um, he had a lot of respect among his peers and a lot of friendships. So when he died, there was this ripple effect that not only um, was devastating for his immediate family, myself and his two boys who were eight and 10 at the time, but um, there was you know, a great impact on our set of friends, his peers in the Marine Corps, the unit that he was uh, attached to at the time, and all of the other military units that he had served with or, or um, had some leadership in. So um, I really realized after his death that this that his suicide was going to be an ongoing 
issue that, that we really needed to figure out um, how to support um, everybody who was impacted. Um, particularly um, what set me on the course of building a postvention model that was very comprehensive and proactive um, was the scene of my husband's death. Um, I arrived there and unfortunately um, he had died um, before I arrived. And the response to that scene um, was a trauma team that came to the scene who were picked by the civilian community. So he died off base. So it was up to, you know, community first responders to come. Um, they sent a, a Catholic priest, a trauma specialist, um, and detectives and police to that scene. Um, I realized right then that this, this journey was going to be very difficult. And as a, as a mom of two young boys, my main concern was how do I tell my children this and what do I tell my children? So I started asking everybody in the room, you know, what do I do? How do I tell my children? Um, even though I was a clinical social worker and had a master's degree in social work and really had a lot of training in, in parenting and, and suicide and depression and all those things, because my husband had just um, died by suicide, I didn't really trust my instincts. And this is really common with survivors. Um, so they're really dependent on those around them, especially professionals, to give them guidance on the way forward and how to set a healthy grief journey. Um, and the information I got at that scene was not only um, not a best practice, but also was uh, harmful and hurtful for my family and set us on a, a trajectory that, that needed to be corrected. Um, for example, the trauma specialist told me that my children were too young to understand suicide and that they should be told that it was accidental. Um, and the priest there told me that um, suicide was considered a, a sin in the church. So right away, um, I was reeling with, you know, additional questions and additional challenges in reaching for support. Um, this, you know, looking on the look back, gave me a lot of information about what we need for survivors, which is really to um, understand how to help them at the scene of the death in those first few hours and days when they're figuring out how to talk about the suicide, how to tell the family, how to um, support each other, and how to understand what has happened. So that's really what propelled me into this direction um, and gave me a lot of information about what survivors um, need to know in order to go forward in a healthy way. That's so interesting, yeah. Kim. As you started to talk about um, the people who arrived on the scene, I was thinking, Oh, that's so great that, you know, a trauma specialist, mm -hmm. and, um, a priest was there, and that's how wonderful. And then as you continue to describe it and sort of like the unhelpful responses that you got, you know, my feelings about that sort yeah. of changed. Um, it's critical. And, and I think, you know, we're doing a lot better now, um, and there's a lot more understanding about spirituality and trauma and talking to children and all of those things. It's, it's really critical that the people that are first in contact with survivors I have a really good understanding about best practices and able to support families in stabilizing and setting a foundation that's going to be healthy and healing for them. And Maggie, how about you in terms of your own personal experiences with suicide loss and, and how that's potentially been part of your um, passion of this area of the field? Sure. I mean, that my experience with suicide is definitely what um, set me on this course. So, um, 18 years ago, when I was a 20-year-old college student, um, my dad, who had had no prior mental health history, um, suddenly became severely depressed. Um, and so my family, I have four siblings, and my mom, we all kind of rallied around him when we recognized what was happening and got him into treatment, and he got on some medication, and um, we all were kind of checking in on him regularly. Um, but about three months later, he died by suicide. Um, it was quite a shock to all of us. I mean, we actually thought that he had started to improve. Um, there wasn't much in terms of a postvention response. Um, I was the one to come home and find him. He had died before I arrived, and I called the first responders. Um, and I think that the first responders who arrived on the scene were sort of at a loss for how to deal with me. You know, I was, of course very upset and trying to figure out my next steps in terms of notifying the rest of my family, my mother and my siblings. Um, 
and very overwhelmed at this prospect. Not, you know, I remember kind of asking questions like, how do I do this and what do I do? And I think they were, again, sort of at a loss for what to say to me and how to direct me. Um, so I felt pretty alone in those moments. Um, after that whole process, you know, my, since my dad had been involved in care, his primary uh, care doctor and his psychiatrist were notified as part of the police investigation into his death. Um, the primary care doctor did reach out to my mother um, when he found out, and he was very kind and supportive. Uh, the psychiatrist actually never um, reached out to my family at all, um, I think, which was surprising, especially to my mother, who had been very involved in my father's care and had a working relationship with a psychiatrist. Um, so in terms of like formal postvention response, there there really wasn't much. And I think my family was just sort of left to, to navigate this on our own. And we had had no previous experience with suicide. Uh, and so we kind of started at square one and figured out how to support ourselves and each other through this process. Um, but I think that really propelled me, you know, later on in doing my dissertation in suicide bereavement into looking at what are some of the unique aspects about suicide bereavement and what survivors need, um, not just in that initial aftermath, but in sort of an ongoing way. Well, Kim, I just want to pause there. Anything that you wanted to say in response to what Maggie had shared before I kind of shift us? Well, first of all, Maggie, I'm so sorry about the death of your dad. and. I, you know, you, your um, experience is very common from what I hear from other suicide loss survivors is, is just people not knowing what to do and how to respond mm -hmm. and what to say. And oftentimes that means that they say nothing or they pull away, um, which then just right. makes, you know, adds to the feeling of, of helplessness and, and the loneliness of losing a loved one to suicide. So that's right. I think um, mm -hmm. being a suicide survivor can be a very uh, isolating experience and that's often yeah. on the survivor to really reach out and find that support. Well, I think thanks to both of you for being willing to share your personal experiences. I think it's just really helpful in terms of what you bring to the table for your expertise and the amazing work in the field and also just your lived experience really has interacted to put the two of you um, as true leaders in suicide postvention. I think one thing that both of you had talked about in your stories that was really clear were the, the ripple effects, right? That there's obviously those individuals that are closest and then the person that's died by suicide, but there are so many other people that are part of that kind of circle or, or that context. And, and that's something I'd like us to continue to talk about as we move throughout the podcast of how postvention is actually meant and, and should be including as many people as, as possible that had a relationship or impacted by that loss too. I was kind of building on that. I was curious uh, for the two of you to kind of share some of your thoughts on why you think suicide postvention is particularly important in military settings and the VA. Yeah, this is Kim. I could start with that. I, You know, military um, units are very cohesive and they're very close and they uh, develop a culture of having one's back of never leaving you know a, a service member behind of of um, you know death before dishonor and and really sucking it up and pushing through um, and really taking care of your peers um, in combat zones and in training and at home so when when somebody dies by suicide in a in, in a unit, um, it brings up all kinds of feelings of responsibility, of regret, of of anger, of misunderstanding um, about how this could happen that can increase risk um, and interfere with readiness of that unit. Um, so it's critically important that that post-pension protocols happen within the military unit, not just for the family that's impacted but the unit itself on a universal level, um, a selected level, and an indicated level. So really looking at leadership and culture and how they talk about it, how they talk about help seeking, how they talk about suicide, and how they set up a, a, you know, a unit that can support bereavement um, and look at the groups, selected groups that are impacted, you know, close friends of that um, service member, um, people who may have been in combat with them or served with them, um, small groups of people maybe who have 
either found the body or, or been part of that suicide event. Um, and then indicated people who are very close to that person may have may have just um, had a conversation with them or a dinner with them or or um, or in some way had a had a contact before the event that they now feel responsible for. So um, it can leave behind a lot of of things that need to be addressed and stabilized in that unit. Um, traditionally, in military units, because of um, the expectation about readiness and and training and the kind of up tempo they had, especially in the last uh, you know decade of wars, very often whenever there's a death, whether it's suicide or other deaths, they have a memorial service and then they're right back to work. Um, this was the case for years in my husband's unit. You know, there were, if there was a, a, a accident in the aircraft or or suicide, there was a memorial service and they were right back in the cockpit right back to work so there's there's not a space for bereavement and that really what we don't understand and I think value is that that bereavement and giving um, space to that bereavement is critical in readiness um, and so it, it's important to integrate post-pension protocols. Yeah and Kim I like how you mentioned about you know the expectation of you know go, getting right back into work after something like this and how mm-hmm. um, problematic that can really be. And I think that has been one of our thoughts and sort of why postvention is really important here at the VA is because we don't want providers to find out that they lost a, a veteran that they were treating to suicide and then just be expected to go about their day sort of as normal um, without having any time or space to process that. In fact, at the DISPO did um, a postvention um, survey where they talked to suicide uh, loss survivors, including unit members and family members. And consistently what the messages was from unit members and family members was that there wasn't enough time for bereavement um, and not, not enough space and not enough support from leadership for bereavement. And that unit members and family members really valued time to grieve with one another and to be supported in, in being able to be together for that bereavement. So, you know, what we're hearing from the unit members supports what we know is that this bereavement is a, is a critical piece of postvention um, and something that needs to, to be able to stabilize that unit after a loss. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Kim, your work has sort of highlighted the importance of reaching out to surviving family members. And our model here at the VA is our mission is sort of twofold in that uh, our postvention services, we provide postvention to the affected staff that were involved in the veterans care and we provide post-pension services to the affected family members. So you've done a great job highlighting the need for doing that with family and I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the importance for treating the clinicians as survivors as well. Um, The research shows that clinician survivors can have distress levels after a suicide um, that are comparable to that of to those distress levels of surviving family members because we know that veterans have a high suicide rate and that most of our providers will at some point be affected by a death by suicide. So we sort of wanted to deconstruct the vacuum in which providers experience this. Again, looking at suicide bereavement as something that can be isolating and even among providers that we've talked to who have said that you know, there's some feelings that come up if one of your patients that you're treating dies by suicide in which you feel like people look at you as to maybe did you miss something or did you do something wrong or, you know, did you do the appropriate risk assessment? Um, And so you can imagine if you're already treating a very complex and risky population, you have a veteran die by suicide, all these other thoughts and potentially doubt and second guessing and questioning come into your mind. It can really affect the work that you do you know, whether not just you personally, but the work that you do with your other patients. Um, And so we want to do everything we can to support those providers so that they can go on and do the really difficult work that they do. Uh, You know, I think about emotions as the currency of our work as mental health providers, and we want to care for our providers so they don't experience additional trauma or emotional hardening or burnout that can come. Um, We have providers here who have had multiple suicides of patients on their caseload, and we really pay attention to sort of the cumulative effect of that over time, because as a patient, you lose a patient to suicide, you may not just be thinking about that patient's suicide, but 
the other suicides that you've experienced and what the process of that was. So we do kind of pay attention to the cumulative effect on providers over time and how we can make sure that the attention that we give to postvention here is that we've sort of shifted the culture around this, that it's not something that I think providers feel like they have to be alone with. It's an ongoing conversation at our facility, which I think adds to the resilience of providers in the event that something like this happens because they, it's a bit more of a normalized experience. We know that it happens. We know that it affects providers. They know that you know there's going to be people checking in with them, making sure they're doing okay, and that they have the support that they need in the event that this does occur. Yes, and you know one of the things I, I hear a lot from clinicians, you know, who lost a, um, a client to suicide, is you know they're feeling like you know what what could I have done and why you know what didn't I see, what did I miss, and a fear that they'll be judged for their competency. But what what we know is that um, these providers who are seeing very high risk clients are often they're really like being on the front lines, right? Yeah. Of the very the, the the people who are the sickest, and sometimes in clinics, the clinicians who have the most skills and really um, the most ability to save someone are seeing the most clients that are at most high risk, um, and so they have a higher probability of somebody you know dying by suicide. And so set, setting up a clinic culture that has um, an understanding that you're on the front lines um, and giving a lot of support to clinicians um, after um, they lose a, um, a client to suicide and giving them space for bereavement, maybe um, having their caseload covered for a while while, while they need to process what's happened, and then giving them a way to ease back into it in their comfort level um, is is really, really important. Absolutely. and. You know, with the, all the providers we've worked with on this over the last 10 or 11 years, I can tell you that such a huge number of them, after they find out about the suicide, they have their initial, you know, grief reaction. And then they're also going into their chart and looking to see, like, was there yeah. something I missed? Was there something I document? So there's this response of, you know, it's the, the initial grief over losing the person, the shock. And then it's also a feeling of, like, am I is this somehow going to come back to me? Like, am I going to get in trouble or um, am I going to be judged about my care in some way? And so it's a lot of stress for a clinician to absorb. And we just really want to make sure they're not doing that alone. And one of the things we want to think about, too, um, is not only the clinician, but everybody else that's in that clinic. I have a good case example where we had a, a suicide in a VA clinic and the, some of the people that were just as impacted as the clinician was, you know, the housekeeper who, you know, every evening saw this or once a week saw this veteran who would come in for care and would have a conversation with this veteran and built a relationship, right? And That's saw right. that veteran the night before um, the suicide. And so they needed some special postvention um, um, support. Um, also the receptionist, you know, who had built up a relationship with, with that veteran who had come in. There was also feelings of other veterans within the clinic. For example, if that if that veteran was in a support group or a peer-to-peer -peer yep. group, that peer-to-peer -peer group also needed some specialized post-vention care. So we, we while we focus on the person most closely impacted after a suicide, we also have to look at all the other places where that, that person um, had touched and see how is that person that they've touched perceiving the suicide and are there things that need to be addressed or stabilized in order to give them a healthy uh, grief journey. Yeah, Kim, that's a great point that you raised, and I'm glad you mentioned it. Um, we've also had the unfortunate experience of having some of our suicides occur on campus, and in mm -hmm. that case, there's yes. a lot more people affected that, you know, maybe didn't even know the veteran, but they were, you know, witnessed it or were the first responders on the, the scene, and so depending on the suicide and where it happens, you know, the mm -hmm. uh, people affected, you know, can be can be very far-reaching, and we do want to make sure that we are accessing as many of those people as possible to provide support. So in, in active duty in the, in the DODSER, the D Department of Defense Suicide Event Report, according to that, about um, around 50% of suicides happen in a family home in the military, and about 18% happen in the barracks. So we're really talking about 70% of suicides um, happening in a space where either the family or peers are witnessing the death or finding um, the body of their loved one or peer. So that's something else that is a critical consideration when it comes to postvention. 
um, the kind of traumatic exposure that many suicide loss survivors are having, um, and really understanding how much trauma is associated with that exposure, and do they need um, specific treatment for trauma that is separate from the grief. Because we know that those two processes are different, and trauma mm-hmm. also, um, all very often needs to be treated separately. Um, so it's a, it's a big consideration. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you both there for, one, just really setting a strong uh, stage for the rationale for the importance of suicide postvention in the military and the VA. What I really liked in terms of what both of you said, I think you both spoke to the need to have a comprehensive approach. So thinking about that ripple effect, being as inclusive as possible, having special considerations for things like where did the suicide happen, how does that or does it not have effects that may look differently if that wasn't in a public setting. All of those are great kind of importance and elements to consider. And I think one of the major themes that both of you had described there, too, is the importance of shifting the culture over time, um, that it isn't something that is just kind of one and done. It's a, a process that's dynamic, that has to keep kind of moving and improving and changing over time, too, where we're taking a look at our practices and approaches. And Kind of along those lines, what I wanted to do next, especially for our listeners, now that I think you've done a really great job of convincing them to make sure that they're attending to these factors in a military and VA setting, is to highlight the two examples that both of you are involved in to help them get a sense of what's available out there and what's something that they might like to include in their uh, workplace. So Kim, starting with you, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about TAPS. Um, so our listeners can get a better sense of what that looks like and also giving us a bit of an insight into what the TAPS model actually consists of as well. Okay, great. So um, we realized um, early on that suicide grief was different than other kind of losses that we were seeing in the military. Um, It's our number one um, incoming cause of death. We get three to four new suicide loss survivors every day at TAPS. Um, We have a database of about 12,000 suicide loss survivors who have all lost a military um, or veteran loved one to suicide. Um, We have a very comprehensive postvention model um, to address the specific needs for suicide loss. So um, TAPS has um, all kinds of programming that is peer-based but also can connect um, survivors with any other kind of needs they need, whether it's clinical or trauma or casework. Um, We have events and seminars and online support and peer-based support in all different kinds of ways. Um, But for suicide, the post-pension model actually has three um, distinct phases. So our first phase is stabilization. Um, We are, stabilization is the initial contact with survivors to to do kind of three things to I, to assess risk suicide risk in suicide loss survivors and connect with any kind of safety planning or or safe care that they need um, it's to assess trauma and connect with trauma care if needed and third to address suicide specific issues and stabilize them so that they can set a foundation of healthy grief We do that in a number of ways. We have memorandums of understanding with all branches of service and the Department of Defense and the VA so that survivors can be connected to us um, as soon as possible after the suicide. Um, We have what we call a peer professional who does initial outreach to that survivor, um, and they do um, those initial stabilization assessments. They they, um, see if there's a suicide risk in the family, they assess for mental health needs and trauma care, um, and they see, you know, what about this suicide is is this family struggling with? Is it how to talk to the children? Is it why this happened? Is it spirituality? Is it family dynamics? Um, And lots of other things. And then we help, you know, kind of navigate those issues and stabilize them in a way so that the foundation is strong and healthy. Um, After the individual work with the peer professional, um, that survivor then might be connected to a peer mentor. We have, you know, a very robust peer mentor program that are long-term survivors, um, suicide loss survivors that are at least two years out from, from their grief. They've gone through the stabilization process, um, and they may take on the second phase, which is grief work. Not to say that grief doesn't happen throughout the entire um, 
model, but during the grief phase is when we are intentionally focusing on grief and helping families integrate that into their lives. We know that grief is not, you know, a time-limited um, thing. It's something that people carry for the rest of their lives. So we, we actually teach uh, families um, how to integrate grief into their lives by really understanding that we grieve because we love, right? That we are, um, we, it, it, it is, there's a reason why we grieve, and it's connected to um, a love for someone that, we, that is no longer with us. So we teach people to embrace grief as love. We teach them how to have a grief rhythm and really experience grief in a healthy way. And we help them to reconnect with their loved one in a different kind of relationship. Uh, maybe it's soul to soul. Maybe it's uh, through, through letters and, and remembering that the love lives on. Or maybe it's some kind of spiritual connection. Um, and then lastly, um, post-traumatic growth um, is the third stage of our uh, third phase of our of our model and we give opportunities for survivors to make meaning out of their um the death in in honor of their loved one so there's opportunities like telling their story safely and strategically which we train them to do or write for our magazine or blog or be a peer mentor um or just you know help guide them in living their life in, in a more intentional, connected way um, in honor of their loved one. So those three phases um, are kind of the model that we follow. And it can be, it can be, um, that can be instituted with individuals, with small groups, and also with military units. Uh, we use the same model of stabilization, grief work, and post-traumatic growth to help um, have movement in grief and have a goal to, to move towards. Um, and so TAPS, you know, has been around for 25 years doing peer-to-peer -peer support and bereavement. Um, and so we have lots of uh, protocols and, and um, supports um, available for people, including a 24-7 call center where anybody can call in um, any time of night or day and, and talk to a peer and get some support around their grief. Um, so that's a little overview of a, a very complicated system, um, um, and really post-pension has been developed over the, the last decade. Um, we have done some, some research with Melinda Moore and Julie Sorrell that really indicated that our program, our model, um, is offering post-traumatic growth in our population. In fact, our peer mentors who were trained in suicide loss and our suicide peer mentors showed a um, significant amount of um, of increased peer uh, post-traumatic growth compared to other peer mentors for other kinds of losses. So um, the post-pension model um, seems to be working and really highlights the the idea that suicide um, survivors um, are not um, really something to be seen as a broken family that needs clinical care, but rather a family or an individual who is really desperate to make meaning out of this loss and uniquely open to post-traumatic growth. So I'll, I'll stop there and let um, Maggie uh, talk a little bit about her program. So when we find out about a suicide, which could happen in various forms, sometimes it's our suicide prevention coordinator who finds out about that. Sometimes it's the family members who are notifying us. That could be in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes it's a veteran who's letting us know about another veteran that they know about who died by suicide. Um, our first step is to really look to determine who are the, the potential affected staff members that would be involved that could benefit from some postvention support. So we reach out to them and then we plan for our postvention processing meeting or meetings. We keep our model flexible again because each case is different. So for some, it may be that the veteran was really primarily just involved with one therapist here, and so we're just kind of helping one therapist process through that. Um, in other cases, it's much more complex. You know, I mentioned earlier there have been suicides on campus, and so there are many other levels of people that um, may need support and may need different kinds of support, as Kim mentioned earlier, uh, kind of that trauma uh, piece and also the grief piece. Some of our more complex cases who have been involved in various services here at the VA, for example, they were an outpatient, they were also involved in care on our inpatient unit if they did a stay there. Um, they may also be working with other programs that we have, like our chemical dependency unit or homeless program. 
in that case, there may be lots of different staff affected. And so then we will plan to meet with staff in groups. So we'll meet with the inpatient providers all together, may meet with outpatient providers or different teams as needed. So there could be multiple sort of post-mentioned processing meetings. Um, and these meetings are purely supportive in nature. We make sure that it's really separate from any other processes that we have here at the VA that may kind of do a peer review process or a root cause analysis or other processes that look at the case and the care provided um, because we really want this to be a place where um, providers can just talk openly about the reactions that they're having um, Kim mentioned earlier the importance of survivors kind of grieving together, and I feel like that's a big component of our process here, that when we get providers together, um, there's a sharing of sort of what they knew about the veteran. Oftentimes, different providers have different um, information on that particular veteran. For example, their psychiatrist and their therapist might know different pieces of information that when shared and talked about that person can help in the meaning making after a loss and help provider sort of make sense of what happened. Um, so what we do is really just sort of help to facilitate that process and allow them time and space to talk about whatever their reactions might be and to let them know that it's normal to be distressed by this and that you know we're here for them, that there are supports in place that we don't want them struggling with this alone. We also can provide some logistical support, like if it makes sense for a certain provider, for example, if certain providers learning that day that one of the people on their caseload died by suicide, we might uh, not have them be seeing patients in our emergency clinic that day if that's where they were scheduled to be. Things like that, so we can, if we can adjust their workday a little bit so that they have more time and space to do other things and process, then we will do that. During that postvention meeting, we also find out from staff what their knowledge is of the family. So to identify who are the primary family members who've been involved in the veterans care, if anything, and I think that's best case scenario. When we have family members involved in treatment prior to, then it's very easy to identify who those key players are and to make sure that we can reach out to them. And so that helps to inform our outreach. Who are we gonna reach out to? In the research shows that if a person was involved in mental health care and they die by suicide, the family members do hope to hear from the treating provider. So when possible, we will have the treating clinician reach out to the family member themselves and provide some of that initial post-pension support. Um, but we also recognize that there's a lot going on for that provider at that time. They're experiencing their own distress, their own grief reaction, um, maybe some anxiety about making that phone call. Um, and so in cases where that's not possible, then our postvention team will be the ones directly contacting the family. And the purpose of that call is to really to make sure that, uh, you know, to offer our condolences, to find out how family members are doing, to identify other family members, you know, who might be in need of support, and to offer resources and connect them with resources as needed. Well, thank you both for sharing a bit more of a kind of deeper dive into the model that you all are using, Maggie, at the VA, and the TAPS model as well, um, Kim. One thing I was curious about, because um, I think sometimes when it comes to suicide postvention, there are just a lot of questions. And what I've often heard in the field is whether a team approach is needed, could this just be, quote unquote, one person's kind of responsibility? And just wanted to throw that back to the two of you to just provide some comments um, perhaps some recommendations and the best way to set up um, teams or a support system to help carry out the amazing work that you both are doing. As Maggie said, each suicide is different and has different circumstances and different impact um, on, on in a clinic or in a, in a military unit or in a family. So um, a person, there needs to definitely be someone, I think, who can take the lead in a good comprehensive post-pension response, but that may vary depending on the unit, depending on the circumstances, um, but the, the bottom line is it has to be somebody who has, has knowledge about how to do a good post-pension response, like about messaging around suicide, safe messaging, how to safely memorialize, 
um, and how to set up a a culture um, that supports a good foundation for going forward after suicide loss. So I think it can be an individual or a team, depending on the circumstances and the individual um, uh, unit that, that this has happened to. I know for commanders, one of the biggest struggles is really like, you know, they say, what now? And what they're talking about is, how do I talk about this? How do I memorialize safely? And how do I, you know, really stabilize the people that are now at risk? And those three issues um, sometimes can be handled by somebody who's very knowledgeable or need to pull in behavioral health chaplains um, and others who, um, who can help. Maggie, you want to add to that? Sure. I will say, you know, I think as we're treating here at the VA, as we're treating patients, we are most successful when we're able to sort of build a team around the patients that we're treating. And I think it's a parallel process in post-pension that we want to sort of build a team around the providers who may need support. And I think, uh, as you pointed out, Kim, you know, different providers who might be on our post-pension team have different areas of expertise that we could pull from um, in the each unique case that may be needed in more cases than others. And also in terms of staff comfort, you know, there may be certain um, members on my post-pension team that staff feel more comfortable with than others. Um, I think it is really important, as Kim pointed out, to have a lead for that to sort of organize it all, but then making sure that people have different options in terms of who they might go to. I think even from a logistical perspective, it's important to have a team because we do want to respond in a timely fashion and so be able to pull from different members of the team to see who can be available. And in a case where the number of survivors that we're trying to reach out to are larger, that we have, it's not just on one person to facilitate all of those post-pension meetings, that we have a group response in that way. Well, thanks to both of you for that. I think it's a really helpful way of thinking about, one, that a consideration in our the circumstances of the loss. And then also, I think, just shows beautifully, by the way, that both of you have described that depending on the setting, you know, one size won't fit all, too, when it comes to suicide post-fence. And so we want to keep in mind the circumstances of the loss and the loss survivors, and also just the realities of different settings will call for different things. Um, so actually, I wanted to kind of transition there as we wrap up this particular episode um, to just offer some recommendations to our listeners who may be looking to enhance or maybe develop suicide postvention practices at their particular workplace. And Maggie, I wanted to start with you in terms of what recommendations do you have for perhaps, let's say, VA clinicians or VA leadership that are curious about how to get started for potentially developing a model or a team approach like you all have set up? Well, I think um, maybe the first important component is to sort of, and how we got started, I really just surveyed uh, the staff here to see who had an interest in doing this, because I, I do believe that, you know, um, your team's going to be sort of more effective if you have people who have some initial awareness of, you know, suicide and postvention and why it might be important, um, and people who really have an investment in this. I think it is important, as I mentioned earlier, to have a multidisciplinary team. So when our team first started out, you know, we had um, psychiatrists, psychologists, social workers, nursing. Um, we had chaplain involved. So I think it's very important to have a multidisciplinary team um, so that you can kind of be prepared for all the different scenarios that you might get. So surveying for interest, making sure that you have people involved from different disciplines. That's really important here at the VA. Um, I also think it's important to, you know, get support from your leadership and to make sure that they sort of have some buy-in around why suicide postvention is important and how it can help to provide good support and care for the staff and encourage the staff that's healthy so that we can go on treating our veterans. I think it's um, really critical, the pieces that you shared there in terms of making sure that there's interest and, and even part of that is educating um, people at the facility, but the leadership support, thinking about being multidisciplinary, all great recommendations for how to kind of establish and get things going. Um, Kim, I was wondering on your end, uh, for those that are listening, potentially from a military or VA setting, what's the best way for folks to be able to reach out to you all 
um, to be able mm -hmm. to tap into the amazing resources that you have available. It's really important for survivors to be connected um, really soon after the loss so they can be stabilized. And TAPS does that really well. We provide um, care for anyone who's grieving, any, anyone who served, including government contractors. So if you know of a surviving family, you can connect them 24-7 through our call line or at our website at just taps.org. We'll do initial outreach assessment and get them connected to all the care they need. And it doesn't matter um, if they're next of kin or, or, um, or their sister or brother or uncle or battle buddy, whoever it is, if they're grieving, um, you know, we provide care for them. Um, and I, I would suggest just a, a couple things to think about when it comes to postvention is that um, it, when in the veteran and military community, you know, there's so much focus on how one died. You know, there's, there's medals and heroic deaths and bridges named after people who die in, in heroic circumstances that survivors of military suicide, whether veteran or active duty, often fear that their loved one will be remembered for how they died instead of how they lived and served. So um, that's the place to start, I think, when it comes to post-pension and, and dealing with survivors is remembering who that person was and the service and sacrifice that they provided to the country. Um, and that how you talk about suicide and how you talk about this event could make a difference between um, how people survive it. Um, people who are at risk are listening really, really carefully um, to see if it's okay to say that they're also thinking about suicide. They're also listening very carefully to see um, if, if it's going to be supported for them to, to, to get help. Um, and lastly, that, you know, whenever suicide happens, it's an opportunity for all of us to look at this event, find meaning in it, and shift the way we do things, whether it's suicide prevention, intervention, or postvention. Um, and you can find meaning and new purpose in a unit, in a family, in a small group, um, or an individual after if you give them the opportunity. Well, thank you both again. I think we've covered so many different elements critical to suicide postvention throughout the episode, you know, starting initially with really understanding the ripple effect and the importance of making sure we're taking care of suicide loss survivors in the most inclusive way, to then talking about how to really change the culture in terms of what we're doing after a suicide loss. And then, Kim, what you had mentioned there in terms of the work that we do after a suicide loss is just so instrumental in helping people heal after suicide loss and have that post-traumatic growth and recovery, and whether that be a family member, a friend, someone that was in the clinic, a provider, another veteran, another military service member. That's basically the, the goal of what we're trying to do with suicide postvention. So I know you all have given us um, so much information. As we close up today, what I like to do is just kind of turn it back to the two of you to see if you have any last words or anything that you wanted to kind of recap or just quickly kind of touch back on as closing thoughts for our listeners. Um, Kim, I'll start with you if that's okay. Sure, so um, I think very often in the military especially, um, our first kind of thought whenever some a suicide happens is, is to go into prevention mode, right? Start going over the risk factors, warning signs, and, and do a, a prevention briefing. But actually that can increase um, risk and kind of feeling feeling overwhelmed in people, and we really need a post-pension response. So um, I, would, I would encourage people out there, um, whether they're in a VA clinic or a military unit, to, to think about specific post-pension protocols and a model that really addresses all the needs um, following a suicide instead of cooking into prevention mode. Um, and it's, it's doable, it's available, and, and at TAPS.org we have some information about our model if they'd like to learn more about it. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think it's an example of after a suicide loss that people just respond in a way that makes sense, right? Because it's coming from an emotional mm -hmm. place. We don't want this to happen again. What can we do? And sometimes um, people will move too quickly to that prevention mode um, instead mm -hmm. of offering the postvention piece first. And I think one thing that we've talked about in other episodes um, is the importance of setting up a plan and thinking about these things. Um, before the death occurs, as it's just yeah. dramatically hard to be able to do that in the moment. And so I think that um, pearl of wisdom there is so important across workplaces, across settings, 
just to plan for postvention and ultimately postvention is part of an overall prevention plan too. Yes. Oh, I was just going to turn it back over to Maggie to see if you had kind of last thoughts, any other things that you wanted to touch on as we uh, finish up. No, I think just really reiterating that piece that suicide postvention is prevention and that if we respond in a kind and compassionate and thoughtful way that having a suicide loss uh, can actually lead to post-traumatic growth and not necessarily a negative experience or burnout or some of the other things that, you know, I worry happen if people don't have an adequate postvention response. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both again for lending your expertise, letting me pick your brains a bit, and, and just really sharing with our listeners the importance of making sure that we're having a space for bereavement and that we're planning for suicide postvention in, in military settings. So thank you both again for joining us today. Um, and we look forward to hopefully some of our listeners coming back for some of the episodes um, that we've already released or future ones coming out. So please be sure to check out some of the other episodes in our Suicide Postvention podcast series. But thanks again, Kim and Maggie. Thank, Thank you. you for having us. podcast is brought to you by Uniting for Suicide Postvention, USPV, in collaboration with the American Association of Suicidology Clinical Survivor Task Force. USPV offers suicide postvention resources designed for family, friends, acquaintances, employees, supervisors, managers, and professional caregivers, including mental and medical health providers. USPV is funded by the Veterans Health Administration Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Thank you for listening and be sure to check out our other episodes in this Suicide Postvention series.